I've been hearing a lot uh, lately. I don't know if it's just the books that I'm reading or the people I've listened to, but I keep hearing this story resurface again and again. Uh, it's the story of a man named Charles Blondin. And maybe you've heard his story. Maybe you're familiar with his story. Um, I know I've heard it several times. I think it's a story worth repeating. Charles Blondin's famous. Uh, he's a Frenchman, uh, most famous for being this great tightrope walker. It's amazing the things that we could do and the skills we could acquire uh, when we had a little more simple life and less distraction. Uh, but he, uh, not, not saying that I would be a tightrope walker if I didn't have a cell phone, but I'm just saying that it's kind of amazing the things that people can do uh, when they utilize their time well. And, and so uh, Charles Blondin was this tightrope walker. He's most famous for his feat of crossing uh, Niagara Falls uh, on a tightrope. In 1860, he crossed Niagara Falls 11,000 feet, almost a quarter of a mile, at 160 feet above the Roaring Falls. He crossed it uh, on a tightrope. He didn't do it just once. He did it multiple times. Uh, he did it the more conventional way, if, that, if that's such a thing, like I'm a, an expert, you know, like with a pole. And uh, he did it with a man on his back. He, he did it one time that day uh, with a stove and an egg and a plate, and he made himself an omelet. Uh, and he stopped halfway through to make the omelet on the tightrope, stood back up, and made his way to the other side. Uh, he then took a wheelbarrow and put a bag of potatoes in it, and then took the wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls. Just incredible feats. And you can imagine with each pass across Niagara Falls, the crowd got more excited, the crowd grew. There's a lot of enthusiasm. Uh, and, and when he came across with the wheelbarrow full of potatoes, he got to the other side, uh, and he said, Who thinks? that I can carry a man across in the wheelbarrow. And the crowd just erupted. Uh, you can do it. And then he asked the next question, who will volunteer? And, 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 and the people that tell the story say that the crowd just went quiet. And that's where the stories kind of diverge. Uh, some accounts that I've read say that someone eventually spoke up and was willing. And, and some say nobody spoke up. Maybe everybody left before that person did. I don't know. But account after account talks about this time when he asked for people who'd be willing to get in the wheelbarrow and the crowd just went silent from roars uh, to silence. And I tell that story because I think it's just this great opportunity to think about the difference between merely thinking something is true and believing something is true. When we think, it's this intellectual exercise. We can agree with things. We can think about things. You can hear a good idea and you can think about it. You can say, that sounds really good. Uh, maybe, maybe you get some advice on how to manage money and, and how to stay out of debt. And you're like, man, I think that's incredible advice. I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna manage my money well. I'm gonna stay out of debt. You can think that's incredible. You can say, you know what? I think spending time with my, fa my, my family is valuable. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna make that. I think that's important to be a priority in my life. But you can think about things and they never affect how you live. But when you believe something is true, belief always manifests itself in action. And so if I believe that managing my money is important and, and, and minimizing debt is important, guess what? My actions are gonna show that. If I believe that my family is important, then my actions are gonna show me prioritizing them. There's a difference between thinking and believing. And so why do I share about thinking and belief? We, we are four weeks into this series. We're wrapping up not only our series, This Changes Everything Today, but our whole look at the book of Acts since September 11th of last year today. We have said a lot of things. Uh, people have said they believe in a lot of things. We've said the last four weeks that, that we, we believe that this, Jesus and his resurrection, truly change everything. 
that they should change everything about how we think, how we live, how we act, how we talk, how we relate, what we do with our bodies, what we do with our time. Like, like Jesus should change everything. Week one, we saw Jesus wants to change everything about our past, our present, and our future. That was Easter Sunday. We saw through the conversion of Paul that Jesus wants to change everything for us. And that comes by by really seeing him clearly, seeing who he is and what he stands for. We saw the following, that Jesus wants to change everything when it comes to how we understand disease and death. That the disease and death in this world don't get the final say. Uh, There may be healing, there may be resurrection in this life, but even when there isn't, we know that in the world to come, when Jesus makes all things new, there will be resurrection and there will be healing. And last week, Tom spoke, and he shared about the account of the Philippian jailer and how Jesus wants to change everything for us. And as he changes everything for us, he wants to change everything for our families and those people that that we have influence over, that are influenced by us. And so we can say all these things about Jesus changes everything, but the question is, do we merely think that Jesus can change everything? Will we believe that he changes everything. Do you agree in your mind that, yeah, yeah, Jesus is the son of God. Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose again, and that should shape everything for my life? Or does it go to the next level and it's, it's about action, that, that it shapes? You believe in the power of his transforming spirit, that it enters into you and it guides you into his way, into his truth, into his life. And you, you allow him to, to show you places and show you relationships and show you behaviors and show you attitudes that aren't yet in alignment with his. And you will, because you believe him, you will take action through the power of his spirit to be transformed more into his likeness. Do we believe that Jesus changes everything or do we simply think that he changes everything? And that's the question I want you to wrestle with today because what you do with that question matters. There are a whole lot of people that think that Jesus is really an incredibly smart man, a great teacher, a gentle and kind person. There are a lot of people that think that Jesus should make a difference in your life, but Jesus has not yet made a difference in their life. They don't believe. It doesn't lead them to action. We're going to meet two of those people in Acts chapter 24 today. And I think how they wrestle, uh, we need to be honest how we wrestle in the same ways. And so if you have your Bibles, find Acts 24. Um, We're not going to read just yet, but it'll give you time to get there. It's obviously a lot quicker if you have a digital Bible, but I like the the physical copy. And so Acts 24, we're going to be at verse 22 when we get there. But I want to give you a bit of a summary that leads up to Acts 24. In Acts 21, uh, Paul, who's been traveling all throughout the Roman world, he's been sharing with people who Jesus is, um, he just feels compelled um, in in the chapter before that he has to go to Jerusalem. He has to go back to Jerusalem. He has to tell more people about Jesus. He's even warned by a prophet not to go to Jerusalem because it's going to be hard for him there. He's like, no, I I have to go to Jerusalem. I, 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 I have to get there. And so he goes to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 21. Uh, He arrives because he's been around some people that are are unclean. He he purifies himself. Um, And even though he does everything right according to Jewish law, there is still some resistance among Jewish leaders. And they actually incite a riot against him. And they have Paul arrested. Uh, Paul is jailed. Paul is brought before the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. Uh, You find that uh, in in Acts chapter 22. In Acts chapter 23, um, he's then transferred to Felix, the governor of, of that province of the Roman Empire. Five days later, this is Acts now chapter 24, um, Paul is brought on trial before Felix. There are Jewish leaders, including the high priest himself, has made the journey from Jerusalem to Caesarea um, to state the case before Felix. 
They've hired like this well-accomplished attorney. I don't know if they saw billboards all over Jerusalem, attorney for hire or what, but they got Tertullus and they called the hotline and he comes to their aid and they go to Caesarea together and he's defending um, the false accusations of these Jewish leaders. And so Felix is hearing all these false narratives about what Paul has done and he gives Paul a chance to give his defense and uh, Paul does so simply, eloquently, truthfully, and what results is what we see in verses 22 to 27. So we'll pick up in verse 22. It says, then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, uh, Tertullus, the attorney for uh, the Jewish leaders, has said this is what he's doing. He's a part of this sect of people following Jesus. And, and Paul's defense says, you know what? He's right. I follow the way of Jesus. So it tells us that Felix was also well acquainted with the way. He adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he says, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. And when I find it convenient, I'll send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. And so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. So Felix hears this eloquent defense, simple but eloquent defense by Paul. He then chooses to give him what I would consider a compassionate punishment. He could have locked him up. He could have um, made it where none of his friends could see him, but instead he gives him a little bit of freedom and he makes it so that Paul's friends can come and see him and tend to his needs. So Felix gives a little bit of compassion, which we'll learn in a little while, is, is very out of the ordinary for, for Felix. Sometime later, Felix and his wife, Drusilla, decide to have Paul come and talk with them. Something they should have been expecting, because we've seen this from Paul all along in the book of Acts ourselves, that they've heard the rumors of the way, they have to know this is true. Paul's going to tell them about Jesus. And sure enough, what does Paul do? Paul speaks to them about faith in Christ Jesus. Paul takes advantage of the opportunity to have an audience with the ruling Roman governor of his province and, and shares with them about who Jesus is. We would probably say in our modern terms that in this moment, Paul shares the gospel with Felix and Drusilla. What do we mean by that? Well, the gospel is a word we use uh, to mean proclaiming or telling the good news about who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, but not just who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, but what Jesus has done for me and what it means for me, not just when I die, but what it means for me in this world. It's about what Jesus has rescued us from and what Jesus has rescued us to, even in this world. And we see this in Acts chapter 24. It says he spoke to them about faith in Christ Jesus, about believing and trusting and following Christ a regal term, king, Messiah, the rescuing king, Jesus. So Paul is telling them about what Jesus has done. What did he rescue them from? What does he want to be king over? So he's sharing with them probably even his own story. He's done that on other occasions. He does that for Herod Agrippa here a little bit later in his life. 
he's sharing how uh, there is a rift between the God of the universe and human beings that he's created. And that rift is there because of our sin and our rebellion. And that sin keeps us from living in harmony with our creator. But, but God saw that and he knew he had to work on our behalf. And so he sent his one and only son, fully God yet fully man in Jesus, to live, to show us what it really means uh, to be human, how we should treat one another, how we should respond to God and interact with the God of the universe, how we should live our lives in this world. He showed us how to do that. And then even beyond that, he decided to take upon himself our sin and our rebellion that keeps us from God. And he died a sinner's death on a cross and he rose victoriously over the grave so that everyone who trusts and follows and believes in Jesus can have eternal life. And eternal life isn't something that just begins when we die. It begins the moment we respond to Jesus in faith. You see that in this account as well, because what is Paul talking about? Now, Luke just gives us a summary of the sermon. He says he spoke to them about faith in Christ Jesus, and he also talked to them about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. So it's about what Jesus has done, but also what it means for us now. Righteousness. God has a standard. There's a right way to live. There's a way to live rightly. That's righteousness. Self-control. To live rightly is gonna require us to say no to some things that feel really good or our bodies tell us we want to do or our minds tell us we want to do, whether that's revenge or lust or pleasure or greed or whatever, it's gonna take self-control to follow King Jesus. And in the end, there's gonna be a coming judgment and it's gonna matter on that day what we've done with our lives. And the most important thing that's gonna matter on that day is what we've done with Jesus. Have we chosen to trust and follow him? If we've chosen to trust and follow him, God may know all of our sin and our wrongdoings, but he's gonna see us through the blood of Jesus Christ and we'll be welcomed into eternal life, perfect life with him. But if we haven't responded to Jesus, then we'll be judged according to what we've done and the punishment is not good. So Paul shares the gospel with Felix and Drusilla. But, but look at Felix's response. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment, this is verse 25. Felix was afraid and said, that's enough. <laughs> that's enough for now. Um, I'll have you back when it's a little more convenient for me. Why was Felix afraid? when Paul shares the good news, the great news, the best news about who God is, what he's done in Jesus Christ, what it means for us. Why was Felix so afraid? We need to know a little bit more about Felix's life. Uh, Felix is the first ever slave, Roman slave, that became a Roman governor. You may think that's an incredible story for Felix. That's a rags of riches tale. That's the prince and the pauper. Like how great that this slave would work so hard and be so diligent and live with such character and integrity that someone would notice them. Like we may think it's more of a Joseph story from Genesis, right? Falsely accused and slaved and suddenly he rises to prominence. God honors him. But that's not Felix's story. Uh, Felix is more of a story in modern politics where it's not always about what you really know and what you've done but it's about who you know and your connections. So Felix had a brother, his name was Pallas. Felix and his brother Pallas were both enslaved together when a woman named Antonia set them free. Antonia uh, was the mother of a man named Claudius. Uh, he was also called Prince Claudius. He would later go on to be Emperor Claudius and Caesar Claudius. So Felix's brother Pallas was best buddies 
with the man who became Emperor Claudius. So Pallas has a position of prominence, and he bends the ear of his good buddy Claudius, and he says, hey, what about my brother Felix? Can he, can he, can he, can he do something? And he gives him a government position, and eventually someone dies, and, and Felix gets to rise to become the governor of a province uh, in the Roman Empire. It's not a rags to riches tale. It's a story just of connections and political intrigue. Felix gets a position that he's never shown merit for having. Here's how Tacitus, the Roman historian, describes Felix as a ruler. He says he was a master of cruelty and lust who exercised the powers of a king with the spirit of a slave. So so Felix was this man who had known slavery, he had known oppression, and now he rises to this place of prominence and he chooses to exact on others the things that he felt as a slave with great cruelty. Josephus, the Jewish historian, records this of Felix. Uh, he, He says that anarchies and insurrections, like attempts at that, rose significantly during Felix's time as a provincial governor. In fact, um, Felix was known for crucifying anyone who tried to lead any type of movement to restore national identity to Israel, to, 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 have to lead an insurrection, to challenge his authority. He would crucify them, and the roads uh, of that region would be littered with people who were killed because he's ruling with brutality. To give you a picture, Felix is a man who does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, Whatever makes him feel good in the moment. If he's angry, kill somebody. If he's greedy, take something. If he's lustful, find a woman. And that leads us to Drusilla. Drusilla was signed off. She was a Jewish woman. Paul tells us that. But when we study history, Drusilla was a 14-year-old bride given in an arranged marriage to a leader, I think his name was Asius, of a small kingdom in Syria. She was with Asius for two years in this arranged marriage when suddenly Drusilla and Felix find themselves in close proximity to each other. He's attracted to her. Josephus tells us that she was beautiful. She's attracted to him. And so Felix says, hey, come be my wife. And so she comes to be his illicit lover and then later his wife. Felix is now her second husband. Drusilla is now Felix's third wife. Together as a couple, they're a couple who does what they want, when they want, how they want, whatever feels good. They are their own authorities. They are the kings and queens of their life. No one tells them what to do. They tell other people what to do. That's how they like to live. So imagine when a man named Paul shares a story about a man named Jesus who wants to be their king, who has a right way to live, who wants them to practice self-control, who says there's a judgment that's coming and how you've lived in this world is gonna matter one day and and how you spend the rest of eternity is gonna be based upon what you've done in this world. That's why the gospel scares Felix because it will change everything for him. It will demand repentance for him. It will demand a change of behavior and character and life. He'll have to apologize to people and live differently. He can't just do what he wants to do anymore. He has to say, God, you do what you wanna do and I'll follow. And so it scares him. Felix has been a slave. He's been a slave to a Roman master. Does he really wanna be a slave to Jesus? And what Felix misses in the whole thing is that you're gonna be a slave to something in this world. 
Even in that moment, he's a slave to his passions. He's a slave to his own desires. He's a slave to his own wants. But, but hearing what King Jesus requires, hearing how Jesus should change everything for him, scares him. Just, just look at, just more, more in depth at, at um, Felix's response. Let's go back to verse 22. It's not as though Felix is hearing about Jesus for the very first time. It says, Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, Luke tells us that, that Felix had heard about Jesus before. He knew about people who followed Jesus. He knew what they stood for. In fact, he's probably very curious. That's why he wants an audience with Paul to hear more about Jesus. He even listens. It says he listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. Like Felix is saying, yeah, hey, tell me more about Jesus. But when push comes to shove, he and Drusilla only want what is convenient. He says, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. Felix may think that Jesus is a really great guy. He may think that the way is an incredible movement. He may think that it's a remarkable that a God would send his son to die for people but he doesn't believe it. He can think that it's important for Jesus to change everything, but does he believe and act as though Jesus should change everything? Felix and Drusilla choose curiosity and comfort and convenience over conviction and courage and commitment. And isn't that the choice that you and I face? We can hear the gospel that you and I are separated from an amazing God who loves us. We are formed and made and forged in his image. And we are separated from that amazing God in whose image we're made and for whom we crave because of our sin. And every one of us has sinned. Every one of us, like sheep, have gone astray. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all have rebelled. Sin is simply this Greek word that means to miss the mark. Like God has a standard. God has a plan. And every time we deviate from that, we sin. Intentionally or unintentionally, we miss what he's planned for us. And that keeps us from being with the perfect and holy God. And here's the beauty of the good news is that that's not the final story because God sent his son into the world clothed in human flesh, susceptible to everything that we were, uh, overcame every temptation, was without sin. And not only that, but he died. And he died for your sin and my sins to nail them to the cross, to bury them in the grave. And he rose victoriously so that if we trust and follow him, we don't have to be ruled by sin and we don't have to be ruled by death. That's the good news. That doesn't just start when we die. It's, it's right now. You can live for the good news of eternity. You can live for eternal things now. His spirit wants to live inside of you and guide you into his hope and his joy and his peace and his life. But will we believe it? Will we act as though that's true? Will we say, come Jesus, live inside of me, show me, change my desires, change my habits, change my affections, let me live for you. Will Jesus change everything for us? Or will we choose simply curiosity and comfort and convenience over conviction and courage and commitment? I think it's easy for those who have been familiar with Jesus for a long time 
I won't even say I think it's easy. I know it's easy because I found myself here before. And without God, I find myself there again and again. It's only through his grace that he delivers me from it. But it's really easy for people who have been following Jesus to kind of come to this place of pride and say, yeah, I believe Jesus changes everything. I'm acting mostly like Jesus changes everything. And we can look down upon people and we can say, well, how can they not? How, how could the Felixes and the Drusillas of this world resist who he is? And I often think we get there because we forget who we were before him. I, I don't know who in your life, or maybe it's you, that is yet to say, I truly accept that Jesus wants to change everything for me. I don't know what it is that keeps you from that. I don't know what it is that keeps your loved one from that. If you're watching online, I don't know what it is that keeps you from that. Is it that you truly don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is? That's not often what I run into. Most people have no issue with there being a historic Jesus and even the things that he did. What most often we have an issue with is what Felix and Drusilla had an issue with, and that's the cost. And Jesus himself, let's not minimize the cost. Following Jesus is not all rainbows and sunshine. There's a cost that's associated with it. Jesus himself says that, that even a builder, before he builds something, will will figure up the cost of materials. Even a king, before he sends off his people to war, will, will count the cost. Jesus himself tells his followers that uh, if you're going to come after me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross daily to follow me. Like there, there is a cost. Jesus says that there are people who will try to gain the whole world in the process they will forfeit their very souls. But the converse is true that you can forfeit your life in this world and gain all the riches of eternity. Which one of us wants to save our life so much that we'll actually lose it? Or will we choose to lose our life for the sake of Jesus and actually find it saved? There's a cost to following Jesus. And so I don't think what keeps people away is whether Jesus is real or Jesus is true. Uh, I find fewer and fewer people that will deny that Jesus was historical. Fewer and fewer people will deny the resurrection. It more comes down to the cost. It comes down to thinking, sounds great, and believing, action. Will we believe? Will you choose to take that step and experience a life that's far greater than anything you could ever thought or imagined? And again, back to those who are followers of Jesus already, let's not come to a place of arrogance and pride and say, we've got this all figured out. Hey, here's a question that came to me that's kind of haunting this week as I prepared. Which is worse, to be familiar with the way of Jesus and not want it, Felix and Drusilla, others who decide not to follow him, or to claim to be committed to the way of Jesus and yet not follow him or commit fully to him. So you see, someone who says, okay, this is who Jesus is, I don't want him, and they live like they don't want him, that actually has more integrity than a person who says, I want King Jesus, and yet I'm still gonna do my own thing. And yet what do we see so often? Again, just some thoughts that occurred to me. How many who claim to be followers of Jesus fail to let him change hardly anything at all? How many are content to just give him a little piece of their lives? How many, maybe even some in this room, are content to give him one or two hours, once or twice a month on a Sunday, rather than letting him change everything? How many want eternity, but, little want, but want little to do with what matters most to God right now? 
How many are willing to say with their lips, Jesus is most important, but our time management, our financial management, our attitudes, the way we treat people, what we do with our bodies, what we post on social media, how we conduct ourselves Sunday evening through Saturday night, say something completely different. Do we think that Jesus wants to change everything? Or do we believe that he wants to change everything? Will we be men and women who say, Jesus, change everything? Show me what's wrong in my life. Transform my tongue, transform my actions, transform my beliefs, transform my finances, transform everything about me. I believe that you wanna change everything. Will we stop being the crowd that cheers on the sidelines saying, I, I believe you can walk across Niagara Falls with a person in a barrel, but I'm not willing to jump in the barrel. Will we be men and women who will jump into the wheelbarrow of Jesus' life, let him change everything as he leads us across the tightrope of life? Jesus changes everything, but will he for you and I? He should, but will he? We have to move from thinking to believing. I'm gonna pray in a moment, and then after that, we're gonna show two videos, or two final This Changes Everything videos. And they just show the stories of two more people at Lebanon Christian Church uh, who have found that it's not just about thinking, it's about believing, and they're taking action to let Jesus be the center of their life and change everything for them. And after we watch those videos, we'll sing a closing song together. God, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you through, for our journey through Acts. I thank you, Father, um, if I'm honest, just even for the painful mistakes of other people that can teach me, God, it's sad that uh, Felix and Drusilla found themselves in a position where they, they inquired about you and your life again and again with Paul, but they never, from what we understand, ever decided to go all in. Um, God, would you help us be people who aren't just curious about you? Would you help us be people who aren't choosing comfort over true courage and commitment to you? Would you help us be people who don't follow you out of convenience, Father, um, but, but truly align our lives around who you are and what you've done? Um, God, I pray that you would help us be a church that lives as though you've changed everything. God, I pray you would help us be individuals in this church who realize that we need to be like Paul. God, I'm so impressed by him in this account how every opportunity he shares about you Every time he's called to Felix and Drusilla, he proclaims, God, may we be people who look for every opportunity to share with others what you've done, not only for us, but for them. And, and God, I pray that you would encourage us even through the testimonies that we're about to see. In your name we pray, amen. So while being raised in a Christian household, I wasn't following uh, what I'd been taught as a child. In fact, I was living life pretty large, enjoying what the world had to offer. Um, it wasn't until years later uh, that my marriage was a wreck, my small children had no exposure to Christ and what Christ could do for them. Um, and so I knew then, that day, that if I turned my life back over to Christ, followed him like I had been taught, I knew that he could change everything, and that's exactly what he did. I've been a believer since a young child, um, but never really knew how to have a relationship with Jesus. 
So 10 years ago, I entered um, one of the darkest part times of my life, and through the storm, Jesus set me free, and was I was allowed to see his light. Um, I had a gallbladder issues, uh, my dad's health was declining quickly, and I had a new baby. Um, so I just had given birth to our third child, and we had a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a brand new baby. In a time I should have felt so much joy, I just didn't. I, I felt sad, I felt overwhelmed. Uh, lonely, like I just couldn't be a mom. And so I was talking to my doctor and my doctor, um, after long conversations, knew that this was not typical for me after a baby. And so he just diagnosed me with postpartum depression and gave me medication and sent me on my way. Well, I was still lost. Like I knew the medication would take time to set in and I knew I still didn't feel good. And so that same day I found out my dad was put on hospice um, I just became really bitter and just, I was just sad and alone. And so a few weeks later, I had to have my gallbladder removed and I just became super overwhelmed. And um, so my mom chose to wait because she knew I needed to have the surgery to tell me um, after I had recovered from anesthesia and everything that my dad only had a few hours to live. So that same day, I spent um, recovering from surgery at my dad's bedside with my family, and um, he took his last breath, which in that time, I felt a sense of peace because I knew he was going to be with the Lord, and that's ultimately what he wanted to be doing. So um, in... I was just sad, I was alone. I felt like, okay, I had a seven-week-old baby. My dad had died. I had just had my gallbladder removed. I just was so overwhelmed and alone, and I was just a mess, honestly. And so I just remember God saying to me one day that, like, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you, I will always be with you. No matter what storm you're in, no matter what season of life you're in, I will be here. And so I, I did. I felt a peace when he said that. And at that time, I just decided that I needed to just start having a relationship with Jesus. And I mean, I had said before that I had always been a believer since I was baptized at like six, but I was just never taught how to have a relationship. So I just started praying and I leaned into God above anything else. I just prayed when I was lonely, when I was sad, when I was mad, I would just cry out to him. And I just prayed all the time, constantly to him. And I started seeing joy. I started feeling like excited to be a mom. And, you know, I was sad that my dad wasn't here with us anymore, but I just, there was a peace about life. And I started seeing better days ahead. And um, not that all the moments were good or any of that, and they're still not. I mean, I still see very dark, dark days, and, but through it all, I just know that Jesus is everything. And without him, I wouldn't be where I am. I honestly don't even know if I'd still be here without Jesus. So I, I just know that above all else, I just have learned that prayer and a relationship with Jesus has been everything for me.